Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt, and I have the joy and honor of being the campus pastor here. And Halstead, I just want to give a shout out to David. Uh, did a great job preaching last week while I was gone. Let's give him a round of applause. <clears throat> We are in uh, week three, our final week of the Good Work series, and we're looking at kind of the end of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, if you've missed the first couple, uh, we're wrapping up a series we actually started last year looking at uh, a man who was burdened by the Lord to change uh, his community and to change his, his nation and change the people that he was around. Uh, God put a burden on his heart to go back and restore uh, the ancient city of Israel, what was destroyed uh, when God uh, brought punishment on them for their disobedience. God was now restoring them, uh, and he felt burdened to do that. And so the first seven chapters of the book is dealing with rebuilding the city. And these last section that we're looking at is dealing with rebuilding uh, the people. And if you have missed any of these, I encourage you to hop online, check them out through our podcast. Uh, but really the question we're asking through this series is how do you start a movement? How do you start a movement uh, in your own life? Maybe you're here because uh, you want some things to change in your life. You, you're not really sure where to start, but you thought church might be a good place to start. Uh, maybe there's some patterns and some things that you want to change. We would say uh, that Jesus is the way of that change, and so we're glad you're here this morning. But maybe there's some things in your family. Maybe your family has been heading in a trajectory, and you want to change the trajectory of that family. Maybe it's a business place or your community. And so uh, really what we've been looking at is kind of three parts, and we're going to look at the third part today and we said the movement starts with if we're going to move towards God we have to know what God's word said and so uh, week one was really how do we begin to understand the Bible for ourselves apply the Bible for ourselves look at it not as a finger pointing out but a finger pointing in of reflection that it would change us deeply and then out of that change we begin to help others know God and help them understand the life-changing forgiveness of Jesus Christ and so uh, as an application to that sermon we uh, offered these up to you guys the foundations mentorship booklets which are uh, resources we have created for you to help either uh, grow in your own faith or to help somebody else grow in their faith. And we had a whole bunch of them out at the Welcome Center. You took all of them. We had a list. We brought all the people who asked for them plus 20 more, and they're all gone as well. Um, So we printed off a whole bunch more if you wanted to grab one of these or two of these on your way out. Uh, These are a great resource uh, for helping others find their next step in following Jesus. And then last week, Uh, David said, all right, not only is it just the word and you applying the word, uh, we know very clearly that nothing important happens without the hand of God moving on it. And we can work, we can plan, we can prepare, but if the spirit of God doesn't show up, no hearts are getting changed. We may be able to tinker behavior, but we can't change hearts. And so that's why uh, confession and repentance and prayer are such a pivotal part of us moving back towards God that we would recognize where we went wayward. We would uh, repent and return from that sin. And then we would, again, begin to ask God to do what only he can do, which is why we have the day of prayer going on in the back there. It's been going on from six this morning. Uh, It'll finish up around 12 o'clock today. If I don't go too long, you may be able to jump in the last session over there. And what we're doing is just knocking on heaven's door saying, God, would you change our families? Would you change our communities? Would you change our neighborhoods? Would you bring lost people far from you to come find hope and forgiveness in your love? Because uh, we will do everything we can to prepare the table, but the spirit of God has to come move. And that happens through prayer. And the same is true in your life. If there's things that you want changed, it starts with prayer. 
Well, this week we're going to give kind of the final ingredient, I would say kind of the icing on the cake to how you start a movement. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. We're actually going to look at the verse right before at the end of 9. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to put one in your hands for free back at the Welcome Center, uh, just right back there in the corner of the building. If not, you can look on your phone or it'll be on the screen here behind me. We're actually going to pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, the very last verse in the chapter. It says, in view of all this, and so what they're saying here really is in view of the prayer that they just prayed, so everything we talked about last week, in view of their waywardness, in view of their sin, in view of how they've re- rebelled against God, in view of his faithfulness to forgive, in view of all of his redemption, right? So that they're taking into account all of God's salvation and rescue for them. He says, in view of all that, verse 38, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They say, okay, we understand the reality. We've prayed this prayer. We've asked God to forgive us. We've asked God to restore us, but talk is cheap, right? It's kind of like your New Year's resolutions. This is kind of the closest thing to a New Year's resolution we see in the Bible, right? Like you, we, we all have them. We've all tried them. There's nothing wrong with them. But you all know there's those resolutions that you don't tell anybody about. Like in January, you like decide in your mind, like you might write it in a secret journal, but like you're not telling anybody about them. Why not? Because if mid-February you decide it's a bad thing, bad plan, or you're not going to make it, you're like, nobody knows that I failed in that one, right? Like nobody knows I was going to put down all the jelly donuts, right? Like it just... Nobody's going to have to know. And so what so often happens is we get this emotional response to something. We feel compelled. We feel moved. Yes, I'm all in. I'm going to go do it. And then a week later, it all fades. They know that propensity in their heart and say, okay, we are publicly going to make a binding agreement that this isn't just talk. These are action steps that are actually going to lead to change in our life. And they're using this idea of a covenant. If you don't know what a covenant was in the Old Testament, it was kind of a contract agreement between two parties. So they are making an agreement or contract with God, which I would not recommend. And I'll explain that in a second. This is in the Old Testament. They were making a contract with God that said, we will uphold our part You uphold your part, and we together will agree on this. Basically, they will obey God, and God will bless them. That was the agreement. Now, every covenant in the Old Testament, almost every covenant in the Old Testament, was sealed by the sacrifice of an animal. An animal was sacrificed to show the serious nature of this agreement. The blood would seal it of the animal. It was an Old Testament practice. In the New Testament, we're under a new covenant of grace. And here's the difference. In the Old Testament, the agreement was, We uphold our part, you uphold your part. In the new covenant, it is God upholds his part regardless of our efforts and abilities. And the New Testament is not sealed with the blood of a lamb, it is sealed with the blood of Jesus, which is why you hear us say, when we talk about communion, the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the covenant, right? That's that whole idea that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that sealed the agreement that God was going to do 100%. All we had to do was respond to him. So that's what's happening here. The people are saying, all right, we understand the serious nature that our obedience must be or else we're going backwards. And we don't want to go backwards because we've been there. So publicly, let's hold each other to this. There's a list of names. Go ahead and jump down to verse 28 with me. Here, chapter 10, verse 28. 
The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. All those now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So this wasn't just a movement of the leaders. The people were saying, no, no, we, we want in on this too. We're serious about obeying the Lord. We're serious about pursuing him. Put our names down. We're in on this. And what I love about this is it's not just even head of households. Like, it's families. You see the wives and all their sons and their daughters. So they were collectively saying, we as a family unit are so committed to pursuing the Lord. Put us all in. We're all as a family in on obeying the Lord and honoring the Lord. And then what you see here is this curse and an oath, which is this idea that there was consequences for not obeying what they said they were going to do. Now, this is similar. I actually saw this app recently, and it was basically like you could say what kind of habits you were trying to create, and then you could write your punishment below. So it's similar to, you know, your kid's cursing jar when they call somebody a meanie head or something like that. Well, that's a quarter in the jar, right? There are consequences for the agreement that we had, right? And the same thing is happening here. Now, this takes risk. They understood their own failures. They understood their shortcomings, but they thought the risk was worth moving forward. Similar to us in our walk, sometimes it can feel risky to step out and say, I'm going to change this behavior, or I'm going to follow Jesus for the first time, or I'm going to get baptized. It feels risky because what if we fail? Well, what if we fail? Isn't that the question? See, but here you see them going, we're all in. I would say the icing on the cake uh, for a movement, the third component, if you want to start a movement in your life, in your family's life, in the community, is this word here. It's accountability. We kind of love and hate that word all at the same time, don't we? Right, like we love that word when somebody owes us money. We are all about holding them accountable, and we know every dollar, we know when it was due, right? Like we're all okay with that. We're okay with accountability with our leaders. We're demanding accountability from our political leaders. You demand accountability from your boss. You demand accountability from me as your pastor, and that's good, and you should, and those are all helpful things, but we're not so okay with it. When the table turns on us and somebody begins to ask us to be held accountable, now we immediately begin to push back and say, I got this. I, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Stay out of my business, right? Like, you really love it when somebody comes poking in your business, don't you? Like, somebody asks you hard questions about your marriage and you're like, oh, I just love it when you poke it where I'm failing, right? Like, no, right? One of the worst ones, actually, I, I, I've never seen people get more aggressive than when, I, when anybody asks them about their giving or generosity, right? Like somebody poking in on your money, you're just like, whoa, get out of my business. And pastors are the worst at that. I know. God has wired us that way. We're just there. But here's the thing about accountability. Your life will be determined by the level of accountability you invite into your, into your space, your ceiling will be determined by whether you allow people to speak in, see your blind spots, call you on the carpet at times, encourage you, lift you up. It will be the deciding factor on how far you go in life. Now, there's some of you going, uh I got this, I got this figured out. For now, the word of God is very clear to all of us. None of us are beyond. And, and here's just something I want you to consider. If a leader needs to be held accountable, why would you not need it? 
If it's beneficial for the leader because it's beneficial for the group, why would it not be beneficial for you and the people that God has called you to be around? Here's what I know to be true about accountability. We need accountability in the areas we don't want accountability. We need accountability in the areas we don't want accountability. I would actually take this a step further and I would say this, we need accountability most where we want it least. You know that area in your heart where you just hope nobody asks you the questions. That thing that you just hope nobody feels led by the Spirit to say, hey, how are you doing in this, right? There's just sometimes those areas in our heart, and can I tell you that is where you need to start and most aggressively pursue accountability. The areas I don't want people poking around in my life is where I have had to continually and aggressively invite people into that space. Hey, this is going to be an awkward conversation. Uh, I need you to hold me accountable on this. Okay. Listen, I didn't want it, but I also didn't want to be capped by my pride. I also didn't want to be hindered. See, the only reason we wouldn't want accountability is because we have something to hide. And if you have something to hide, you soon will have something that will hinder you. And, and I want more than that for my family. I want more than that for this community. I want more than that for you. And I hope you want more than that for yourself. And so it's not, don't look at this as punishment. Look at this as help. It's just simply saying, I need somebody to come alongside Here's what's really interesting about this. They, they commit to follow the decrees and the laws and the rules, and then they're going to go on to say specifically, hold us accountable in these three areas. And if you consider the Ten Commandments, you know, there's don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, right? Like big ones, obvious ones. But that's not what they ask for accountability on, and it's really interesting. Let's jump down to verse 30 here. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, or to take their daughters for our sons. This was in a day when marriages were prearranged by their parents, and they were basically saying, we are committing to not allow our children to marry people who don't follow God. We understand that it is incredibly important that if we're going to maintain the family unit and we're going to pursue the Lord as a family and as a nation, we all need to worship the same God. And specifically in their day, if you were not a Jew living in their community, you were worshiping another God. You were not worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, you were worshiping most likely Baal or another pagan god that was really just an idol. And so the risk here was that the family loyalty would then be divided in worship. And so their hearts wouldn't be set apart for the Lord, it would be divided. That began a fracture, which if you remember from last week in their confession, really is what started all the idolatry within their community. It was because they started compromising here and said, okay, we'll just do whatever we want. But beyond predetermined marriage, you can marry who you want, but the New Testament is very clear. Christians are to marry Christians. Not for weird reasons, for reasons of worship. So that your heart and your soul are connected and tied and not divided in devotion. It, it is incredibly clear in the New Testament. But what I think is happening here, even more a kind of big picture than who you marry, is they are inviting the public into their private life. Now, we work hard to keep the public out of our private life. And they're saying, no, 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 I want the people of God to have permission to speak into our marriages, to speak into our dating, to speak into who we're hanging out with. And that is across the line for some of us. You don't get to ask me questions there. You don't get to tell me who I get to date. You don't get to, you don't get to poke there. Which leads me to my question for you is, 
Who asked permission to hold you accountable in your relationships, dating, or marriage? Who who is the person in your life that's asking you how you're treating your spouse? Who is the person that's asking you how you're doing with operating in selflessness rather than selfishness? Who's the person that's asking questions about how you're dealing with grudges and forgiveness? Who's asking you about your boundaries within your dating relationship? Who's holding you accountable to those? Can I tell you the same is true for the other things, that the level of your marriage will be determined by the level of transparency you walk in with people who love you? Why? Because we all have blind spots. Because it's so easy to justify things, and when people who love us and love the Lord speak in, they begin to see things and notice things that we may not have noticed. My brother and his wife um, are missionaries over in Japan, and uh, they came home on furlough, and I said, hey, come stay with us. And so at this point, it was my wife, myself, Jocko, a foster kid that was the same age as Jocko, my brother, his wife, and their two kids who were like 11 and 13, and I'm convinced lived on nothing but pure caffeine, just wired for hire. And so for seven months, my house is jammed, it's loud, and there was a lot of blessings that came out of it. But one of the biggest blessings was actually conversations with my brother and I, because in my house, you, you can't really say anything anywhere, and the sound not travel to the rest of the house. Like, there's no secret place to have a conversation unless you go out in the woods. But even then, I think my neighbors could hear me. And so um, we're having conversations. You can imagine it's a full house. And uh, my brother came up to me one night. He goes, hey, I heard that conversation. Have you considered this? You considered that your approach may not have been helpful? Are you considering what Olivia's going through? And I was like, well, I heard your conversation yesterday too, all right, you know? <laughs> no, I, I had to hold it back. But it was just this unique gift of somebody seeing something that I couldn't see. And can I tell you my marriage is better for it? Was it fun? No. Am I better for it? Absolutely. So who, who's doing that for you? Who's helping you grow in your marriage? Let's jump down to verse 31. See the next thing they promised to hold each other accountable on. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and we will cancel all debts. So what they're talking about here is a commitment to an Old Testament practice of Sabbath. And it was more than just one day off a week. It was a commitment that they were going to just not walk in the way that the world was walking around them, which was slaves really to work. It was an agricultural day. They were rebuilding. They would have needed all hands on deck all seven days just to eke out the living. And God set up the practice of Sabbath to basically say, stop. (laughs) Don't work as if there is no God. Work as if there is a God and recognize that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above and you get to model what God modeled, work really hard for six days and rest on the seventh. And what's crazy is if you walked into your business and the boss said, hey, you all have the day off today, go home, have fun. Nobody's gonna go, no, I'm good. Like, we'll pay you double to go home. No, I'm good, I'll stay here. Like, nobody's gonna say that. They're all gonna go home. And yet... Over the course of Israel's history, they almost never practiced the Sabbath. Why? Because there's an idolatry in our hearts to work. There's this tendency that if I work hard enough, I don't need to rely on God. Well, the Sabbath was designed to teach us to rely on God. That I'm not a slave. I am a son to the one who is ultimately the provider. I am not the ultimate provider. And so it is this practice both of humility, but it's also just this celebration that we would sit back, we would enjoy the good things God has given us, that we would uh, work really, really hard, but then also 
enjoy the goodness of God, which leads me to my next question for you, which is this, who is holding you accountable in your work-rest balance? Who's the one calling you when you should be off work, but you're putting in the extra hours? Who's the one calling you on what should be your day off to make sure you didn't just open up your laptop real quick at work to make sure that, you know, you know, you know whatever. I was just checking some emails. We all know how that leads two hours later. Maybe it's on the other side, like we talked about in the relationship goals. Maybe laziness is a, is a propensity for you. Who's calling you to make sure you're at work on time? Who's calling you to make sure you're putting in honest hours? And I won't belabor this one because we talked about it a lot, but it really is a matter of who am I going to be or allowed to be God in my life? Is he my ultimate provider or am I number one? Let's look at the third thing they commit here together, verse 32. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offering and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath and at the new moon feast and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offering, for sin offering, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. Jump to verse 35. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of our Lord each year the first fruits of our crops of every fruit tree. Verse 39. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, olive oil to the storerooms where their articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests. The gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. They finish this commitment by basically saying, uh, we assume the responsibility to do what God has called us to do and recognize, again, we are not the ultimate provider. All of our money, resources, agriculture, animals comes from the Father above. He is our ultimate provider. And in doing so, what God has called the people of Israel to do and has called us in the New Testament to do is to give back a portion of what God has given to us. It is uh, one, in, in part, to help the ministry of what God is doing, but also it's in part to free us from greed. Right? Like, I was recently helping somebody with their finances, and they're not believers, and we're hanging out, and I was thinking to myself, I know how much he makes. How does he afford the things I, he's affording? I, I, we're similar pay scale. How's he affording? And I was like, oh, he doesn't give because he's not a Christian, so he doesn't believe in that type of generosity. Of course he can afford those things. And my mind is all of a sudden was like, ooh, the things I could afford if I wasn't giving. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa. See how quick that greed just popped up in my heart? And so God uh, puts this in place, one, to protect us from greed, but also to provide for what God is doing. And so they didn't just give 10% of their finances. They gave the first fruits of everything, saying, all right, God, we, we know this all came from you here. This belongs to you. Do it with it as you will, which leads me to my next question. Who is holding you accountable in your finances? Who has permission to ask how you're doing in your spending? Who's, who has permission to ask you about how you're doing in, in debt? Who has permission to talk to you about generosity and giving? Who, who has that? Because uh, the people of Israel saw all the wreckage and said, we don't want to go back there. And they thought having accountability in their finances was a big enough deal that they made a covenant about it. They made an agreement. Why? We don't want to go back there. What's interesting about finances is uh, my wife and I have never uh, really struggled. Neither of us are big spenders. We've, we've handled our finances well, but we have a ton of layers of accountability for our finances. And some people ask, why? Because I know my heart. 
because I know how quickly I could end up in an unhelpful place. So one of our rules as a couple is that we have a dollar amount set and any purchase over that dollar amount has to come to a vote. And if we both uh, agree on it, sure, we can move forward. But there's no split vote purchases in my house, right? So if we both, neither one of us, say one of us doesn't feel good about it, we're not going to do it. That's awesome. I need that in my life. She needs that in her life. One of my favorite parts of teaching financial peace at university is that one of the things in there is you get this app called Every Dollar, and what it does is it links to your bank account, and every time you swipe your card, it pops up with this little bubble at the bottom of the app, and it says what you spent and where you spent it. And every single time I've taught this class, I've taught it six or seven times, we get to this point, and somebody goes, uh-uh, that's not happening. <laughs> Oh, really? And this, you could always see the significant other go, why not? It's like, I want to be in that house later today, right? But, but here's what it does. Accountability, or we don't want accountability. And that's why I love that app, because it just brings into the light things that should be brought into the light. Now, why these three things? Why these three things? I'm going to throw them back up here. Relationships. Work and rest, finances, and generosity. Here, here's why I think they committed to these three. This is, this is just my opinion and conjecture. If your marriage is awesome, your relationships are healthy, you're walking with the Lord, uh, if, you're, if you're single, you're obeying God's commands to stay celibate, right? Like, if you're doing all those things, it's just going well, people are asking you questions, you're not perfect, but you're pursuing the Lord in there. If you're working really hard, and you're resting really well. You're not going to be overworked. You're not going to be frustrated. Can I tell you the amount of sin that happens from being overworked and frustrated and tired? That's why God gave us the Sabbath. <laughs> if you're resting well, you're enjoying those things. You're given. You're generous. Your finances are in order. You're not in debt. There's nothing hang- hanging over your head. Are you going to rob a bank on Friday? No. You have no need. Right? If all of these things are true, are you going to contemplate murder on Tuesday afternoon? No. If all of these things are true, are you going to consider having an affair? No. And here's why I think they picked these three things. These things are key markers in our heart. And if these things, your relationships, your work life, and your finances are moving in a direction of honoring God, the rest of your life is usually just going to follow it. The sin we deal with often is because there's been a breakdown here. And what was true for Israel was that after a period of time, before this happened, when God first established them, they said, yay, we're in God, we're going to do all these things. And gradually and gradually, they stopped being generous. Gradually, they stopped giving. Well, that lack of giving really resulted in wanting more money for themselves. And they worked really, really hard, and they started ignoring the Sabbath and said, we don't really need this, we want to make more money, we're going to work really hard. And then that led to... Bad relationship choices. See, it was a series of seemingly insignificant decisions over an extended period of time that moved Israel in the trajectory they did not want to go. I serve in, I have served as a fitness instructor for about 10 years, but um, in and out of ministry while, while doing that alongside ministry. But there was a season where I worked specifically as a nutrition coach. And uh, how it would work is you'd come into my office for a consultation and you'd sit down and I'd ask you your story. I'd hear where you came from, what you like, what you don't like, what type of exercises you're going to shoot me if I try to ask you to do, like all those questions. And then I'd ask you about their goals. How much weight do you want to lose if it wasn't about weight? What is a movement you want to be able to do? Maybe it was squatting after a a knee replacement or something. Uh, And so I'd hear their goals. And they'd always tell me, all right, I want to do this in like three months or whatever. And I'd say... 
it's not going to happen in three months. It's probably more like a year. And they'd get indignant. I'm like, no. I'm like, listen, Jerry screwed it up. He told everybody that you could eat Subway for six months and lose all the weight. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And they're, oh, come on. Was, no, no, no. It just doesn't work that way. And I would say something, and it would typically slightly offend them, but I was doing it on purpose. So you didn't gain this 50 pounds you're trying to lose when you went to bed last night. You gained it over a series of, decision, a series of decisions over an extended period of time. You're going to lose it in the same way a series of decisions over an extended period of time. It doesn't happen overnight. It just doesn't work that way. And the next thing I would say was, uh, I'm only as good of a coach as you are an honest person. What? So my coaching ability is limited by your willingness to be honest with me. Because you can come in here, you can do these accountability meetings, I can look at your food journal, and you can lie to me all you want. It's not going to work. When you are willing to be honest with yourself, honest with your decisions, honest about what you are doing, and honest about where you want to go, I can help you, and we can get there. From that moment, I could tell you instantly if they were going to reach their goals or not. I've been doing it long enough, I could tell. Want to know what separated them? It wasn't athleticism, it wasn't giftedness, it wasn't money, it certainly wasn't the free time to actually reach their goals. It was the willingness to be known for their shortcomings. The willingness to move past their pride and say, I need help. One of my most successful clients had one of the worst food journals I have ever seen in my life. Like I would read it and go, oh, so, yep, I'm not going to lie to you. Incredible results because she was just honest with what was going on in her life. Can I tell you the same is true in your life and in my life? We didn't get to a place we don't like from one bad decision we got to a place we didn't like from a series of decisions that didn't lead us in the right direction. You want to change your family. You want to change your life. You want to change the direction in which your community is headed. It is one small decision after another, and it is imperfectly pursued. I think so often we avoid accountability because of being known for our failures. Can we just be honest with each other? We all fail, and in many ways, but glory be to God, his grace is sufficient. And that it would only be shame that would keep us from moving forward and lie. So what do you do? How, how do you move forward with a sermon like this? Well, I think for some of us, uh, perhaps you've been trying this. You've been showing up to church. You've been working hard. You've been trying to break habits. You've been doing all these things. But you just feel like you keep hitting this wall and it's just not working for you. Can I uh, tell you what scripture would say? That you can try as you might, but until your heart is transformed by the love of Jesus, it will not work. Until you have met radical love and have sat before the grace of Jesus who knows you as you are, loves you as you are, and has died to save you and rescue you from who you used to be and has a new creation set for you that it is just idle toil work. And so for some of us, maybe what we need is not just accountability to people. We need accountability to the Lord. So God, today I get off of the throne of my life. I make you the authority of my life. Would you hold my heart accountable? to walk in your ways. And maybe for you, you've never committed your life to Christ, and today would be the day that you do that. Maybe for some of you, you have done that. Um, you, you've made that decision, but by and large, you haven't publicly gotten up like they have here in Nehemiah and said, I'm all in. I'm pursuing the Lord. You have permission to keep me honest on this, which is what the waters of baptism are that we celebrate over there. We're going to celebrate them in August. It is an opportunity for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus to say, I'm all in, and you have permission to hold me to the ways 
of Jesus. If you want to know more about that, we'd love to help you there. One of the things we don't talk about a lot here, um, but we do have a church membership. Now, church membership is one of those things that's kind of got a lot of opinions around it, but I want you to see just the six things we ask church members to commit to. Here, here's what they are. I will endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace with others of the church. Essentially, uh, I'm choosing to walk in unity. I'm not going to talk in gossip, disunity, right? I'm agreeing to squash those things. I will walk in unity. Next one. I will make it a practice to pray for the church. I will live uh, before the world in such a way that the name of my Lord and the church will not be brought into disrepute. I will attend the service as often as God permits, absenting myself only when I can do so with a good conscience toward him. I will give to support the church in proportion as the Lord prospers me. I will serve in the ministries of the church. That's it. That's the, that's the membership requirement. And why do we say those things? Because we believe those are biblically fundamental to walking in mature faith. And also we believe that if we collectively do those things, not only will it transform our lives, it will transform the community. But simple decisions over an extended period of time moving in the direction that God has called us to move in. And so where, where do you need accountability? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it is in salvation. Maybe it's in baptism. Maybe it's in your finances. I don't know where it is for you, but I would encourage you to invite somebody into that space and more than just invite them into that space, be honest with them in that space and actually do the work that God is calling you to do in that area. Here's what I know to be true of accountability in my life. Um, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's humbling, and yet it is one of the greatest propellants to me following the Lord. One of the greatest helps, because it's not somebody coming along and slapping my hand, it's me going, I know I'm weak in this area, I have a blind spot, would you come and protect me, help me, and pick me up? It's what Ecclesiastes says, woe to you when you fall alone, for you have no one to pick you up. We would say, I'm here, I'm humble, Humbled, I guess I should say. Would you help me follow the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that a document written thousands and thousands of years ago about an ancient people helps inform how we live today. Thank you for your word and the truth that it speaks. Right today, as we, we talk about accountability, that this wouldn't just be words, that these would be action steps, that we would really want the better life that you offer for us, that we would really want to pursue the more that you're willing to give us. I pray that today we would find people that are safe and that there wouldn't be a judgmental attitude, that we would be gracious and forgiving, but we would also be honest and we would also not let things slide, that we would be the people you've called us to be. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.